ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. If you were to go to your fridge right now, open it up, pick the vegetable you like least. What if you could make it sweeter, saltier? This week on Download This Show, what exactly is the reality of gene editing on the future of food? Plus, who is really reading your emails? Robot cops are about to start patrolling at least one airport around the world. And one of the biggest adult entertainment websites in the world would like to see your driver's licence, please. But why? Let's find out. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed. It is a brand new episode of Download the Show. Wow, I've got to stop turning that thing into a jingle. Um, <laughs> it's not even like a good jingle. I don't think it's my skill set. <laughs> Look, you have a lot of skills. You do. Uh, jingles, I don't know. Maybe not. Um, welcome to the show, Meg Coffee. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you for having me. And creative technologist Jesse Hughes, welcome back to Download the Show. Good day. Thanks so much for squeezing me in your busy schedule, Mark. Gosh. Mate. <laughs> I've always got time for you two. Uh, also, I went I went a bit game show host there. I've gone from jingle to game show host. <laughs> All the dignified characters. All right. Uh, how do you feel about Big Tech reading your, your emails and messages, Meg? Yeah, no, I, uh, I'm not on board with this, with them being in my inbox. I mean, I don't send anything bad, but they don't need to be in my inbox. <laughs> I love how quickly you jumped to that. So the background here is that um, normally when you send a message or you upload something, there's a generalised assumption, I think most of us have, that the only people that will see said thing is the person that you're sending it to. There was a very kind of almost barely noticed announcement that came out from the online safety chief. And essentially what it's looking like is that your Metas, your Googles, your Microsoft will soon be legally required to scan all user content. Now that sounds very big, but what's the origin of it? Where did it start, Meg? So, yeah, so at the crux of this is about finding the bad stuff that's on the internet, right? The, the terror material, the, the pornography or the child exploitation materials and, and, and things like that. And I do agree that we need to, to put a stop to that and the dissemination of that is getting out of control. And that's what the e-safety commissioner is, is saying is that this, this, the spread of this information is getting out of control. So how do we stop it? And they went to big tech and they said, you know, how do you think that we should stop it? And, and the e-safety commissioner doesn't like what big tech came back with and rejected a couple of the codes. So where does that leave us? I I don't want them scanning my inbox, but I also know that we need to find the bad stuff and stop the bad stuff. Out of curiosity, how does this compare to what other countries have, Jesse? I think what we're dealing with is the surveillance state, right? It's mass surveillance again. But like a Lithuanian government report claimed that China was already using this technology um, to stop users from even sending terms like free Tibet and like, you know, these kind of messages. And so I think as soon as you start getting into software that can scan for things and flag them, um, yeah, it depends on who has that power and who has that information, I think. I think what I find most interesting about this, though, Meg, is that essentially what they're doing is they're sort of deputising the Meta, the Google, the Microsoft of the world to actually do the work. Because I think that's always been the, the question with this, which is like, if you were to scan for, you know, child exploitation material and things of that nature on a government level, it would be, you know, very, very hard to manage, right? But by transferring, I guess, the, the work over to the companies that already have the traffic, 
And I'm sure there's a lot of questions that people have, right? Yeah, look, I mean, it's it, it, it's interesting. And we do, the way that the, the tech companies work, you know, they, they have the information technically. Do we really want the government stepping in and doing this? I don't know. I kind of feel like I'd rather have the big tech scanning than the government. I don't want anyone scanning my stuff, but again, I'm not a bad person. <laughs> but I, I get it, right? I mean, there's no question these are serious issues that need to be navigated. I mean, one of the fascinating things then, Meg, is, is it's not like the, the tech companies didn't come with codes. What was it that the eSafety Commissioner found wanting in what those tech companies came back with? Yeah, look, that, that's what's interesting about all of this is that it has been open for consultation and, and everybody, everybody that's, that should be involved seems to have been involved. The problem is, is there just wasn't enough information around the child exploitation and the terror information and how they were going to find it, I think, was some of the problem. And some of the flagging issues that they had, they, they weren't reliable. I think there comes in that whole human versus AI and the resourcing behind the human versus AI. Who's actually going to look for this material action and, and deal with it? Or are we going to rely on, on the machines to find it? As users, Jesse, we're all mm. sort of, you know, seeing this news and I think everybody's mind runs a mile a minute about the implications of it and the ways in which, you know, it, it could be misused and, and, and also what kind of guardrails would be in place. And there's a lot we don't know. So let's just start with this. As a user, Jesse, mm. what are the sorts of assurances you would like to have as to how these powers, this technology would be used and where would the guardrails for you as a user be? The messages that you send between your friends and, I mean, your loved ones, like you, we, we assume that all of those are private, right? I, mean, I think everybody would want most of those messages private. I think the most scary thing you can do is give somebody access to your phone, like even even your best friend, giving your phone to um, your partner or your best friend, just because our entire lives are on our phones now. The most embarrassing thing is somebody looking at my notes app, right? And it's just like to kind of feel like any of that is compromised at any point is a bit scary. Safety can come in a lot of different uh, situations, whether that is, and privacy a lot of the time is part of safety. It is a difficult line to walk. We're going to keep you updated on details as more become apparent with that legislation because it is important. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture and also salad. How do you feel about a gene edited salad, Jesse Hughes? Look, I'm a massive fan of salad. I, this is great. I'm here for it, you know, get all your greens in. <laughs> so some people might not be familiar with this, but there's a, a gene editing tool called CRISPR. Jesse, walk me through. So CRISPR is a DNA editing tool and there's a startup called Pairwise and they want to start gene editing healthier salads. And so what they're talking about is, you know, those mustard greens, those really like strong peppery, like, I don't know, that that you pick them up and they're just, they're just horrible to eat kind of raw. So what they're trying to say is, okay, well, what if we gene edit it so that we can still have all of these health benefits? Apparently these are like really good, I don't know, nutrition. But we can, you know, step back uh, the pepperiness. And so by using this editing tool, CRISPR, they can modify the genes of this to um, change. No, they edit it. They don't modify it. What's the difference, Meg? It's massive. It's huge. (laughs) (laughs) In what way? (laughs) It really is. So they're gene editing and gene modification. So modification is where they take the DNA and they add something else in. So this Mm. is like where the farmers needed to get better crops or, or, Mm -hmm. or make them more withstanding. So they take another species and add that in. What, what CRISPR and the, the salad company want to do is take a gene out. 
So they're editing the DNA sequence by taking something out. It's still the original DNA. Mm. Well, original minus something as opposed to combined. I look forward to that nuance absolutely landing for all the crazy people on the internet. <laughs> um, okay, so okay, so there's a few things with this that I, I think the wider implications of it I am fascinated by because the moment we start taking you know, fruits and vegetables and we start tweaking them towards the market, which, by the way, is mm-hmm. not new, has been happening since time immemorial. Mm-hmm. Inevitably, like, every vegetable and fruit gets sweeter, <laughs> right? Um, I'm just wondering, is this going to be one of those situations where we fundamentally change flavours, Jesse? We really are playing God these days, hey. I, I Yeah, I think, like, for me, I'm really intrigued by the more holistic benefits of if you can get fruit to last longer in the fridge or something. So, like, it extends the shelf life because that's half the reason we have so much food waste is that, yeah, you know. Yeah, but what are you trading for that? Yeah, I suppose that is it. It's like, what what are we trading? If, for example, this is saying, well, we can have something that is more nutritious, is, you know, you're getting benefits out of it. Is that a bad thing? I'm not sure if it is a bad thing. I'm thinking. Well, I guess the thing is, I mean, you talk to anybody that works in agriculture or anybody that has like grafted a tomato plant and they'll tell you that we have been, we have been modifying and uh, uh, changing foods for time immemorial. Now, some t- now the technology has obviously changed over years. I think what I always come back to is like, is there a line? Where is the line? And I guess what is the criteria for changing a food? Because like we know that the market forces will always change the food that we grow and how we grow them. I guess the question I, I come back to, Meg, is like, should there be a rationale for when it comes to, you know, editing or modifying separate things? fruit and vegetables. Yeah, look, I mean, I love apples, okay? All kinds of apples. Um, Controversial take. Controversial (laughs) take. I know, right? But we get some of these new amazing apples that we have, and we do get a lot of apples out of WA that are come by grafting and by combining two species. And, And some of these new ones are my favorite apples, right, that we wouldn't have had if we hadn't had the science to graft them and grow them. We are, I do feel, though, coming close to that line, that arbitrary line of enough is enough. I've got a fun one to add to this. So there was this CRISPR-edited cattle (laughs) where they were using this gene editing tool to give cows a short, slicker coat in terms of, like, being able to better withstand hot temperatures. So they're, like, literally changing cows to be able to deal with climate change. Like, that's what we're doing to stop climate change. (laughs) Somehow the seedless blackberries and pitless cherries seems kind of quite comparatively to the... We, we went dystopian fast in this episode. I mean, you do. You think about watermelons or you think about bananas and what we eat today are not the fruit that, that originally existed. We've modified all of that stuff. I, I'm with you. Like, the, the let's make it longer. Let's make it new, more nutritious. But my question is, what are we trading that for? Well, I, I want to pick up on something you said earlier, Meg, and, and this is obviously a story that's playing out in the US, right? And in the US, gene-edited foods aren't subject to the same regulations as uh, modified foods. And uh, you sort of, you, you kind of itemized it earlier. I mean, given the level to which CRISPR and other technologies like it can affect food, do you, do you think that distinction is getting a bit fuzzy at this point? Well, look, I, I think it's an important distinction. Part of the problem, though, is that GMO does have a negative connotation around it. It hasn't been sold in the best way. It needs a new advertising campaign. And a lot of times the products that we do see that are GMO aren't necessarily better. They're not necessarily better for the consumer. Yes, it might be a bigger apple, but it doesn't taste better, 
right? Or it might look more the shape, but it, but the the quality isn't isn't where it used to be. So you know, people want to know what a GMO modified is. They want to know that GMO versus organic. Um, I do think that the consumer needs to know when their food has been edited or touched. It's no different than it being fresh or processed. What about you, Jesse? Do you think there's a degree of transparency that's required that that doesn't exist at the moment? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think we do need transparency. And my mum will buy anything with an organic sticker on it, you know. (laughs) know, Entire fridge is full of organic stuff only. I don't know. My perspective is kind of a bit more in the whole systems thinking way of if we can be having crops that are better for farmers and are better and are more resistant to, you know, the, the way that the world is changing with climate change. I'm not opposed, if our science permits it, having better ways to, um, yeah, just be able to meet those kind of needs. I mean, one thing I will say, though, until we sort of started looking at this story, I didn't realise how much gene editing had already been happening over the last few years. Like, Do you think people are aware that there is foods that they are potentially eating now around the world that has already been gene edited? And do you think there's an awareness of that? I personally just assumed that it was. I don't know if that is just cynical of me, but I just I genuinely just assumed it was. And, and there is such a disconnect between what happens to, in terms of production and food, like how food is managed and everything, to what we as a consumer get. For us, it is walking into a sh- shop, putting it in a bag and walking out and eating the thing. Like that is it, right? It's like you don't think about meat production. Um, same with fruit and vegetables. Like I don't think we think about, oh, how this, how long this is transported. Actually, on the topic of apples, there we go, Meg. Um, I, I, you know, I was working with somebody who deals with um, food production and they're like, yeah, by the time you eat an apple, that's about, that apple is about eight months old and it's been in a fridge for eight months. Can you believe yeah. that that apple that you eat is eight months old? Is that not insane to you? It makes some sense to me. Like I kind of get it. But that's the thing. It's like I, when I walk into the shop, I just pick it up and eat it. Like I, I think that's we just have this full disconnect. Meg, there's something you said earlier that stuck in my mind, which was about how genetically modified foods, GMOs, have a bad rap, right? There's a whole mm. bunch of sort of people that have very strong opinions about genetically modified foods. Do they sort of run the risk of a backlash if they're not transparent about it early and own the story about how that food is, is, is derived at? This is you putting your marketer hat on, basically. It's like, do you think if they're not upfront and transparent and talk about it early and control the story of that, that they run a backlash of people kind of building their own sense of conspiracy or, or actually, to be said, legitimate concerns over that stuff later on? 10,000%. Not even 100%. Like, you, you, you've taken the words out of my mouth in that. Is that. Right now is the opportunity for them to tell the story, to own the story, to own the narrative, and actually explain what this is, what the benefits are, right? It needs a proper good PR campaign. Because otherwise, if if the ideas fall into the wrong hands, in, in the world that we live in today, and the way that information is spread so quickly, especially, you know, false information, because facts don't exist anymore, if they don't get on top of it and own the narrative, then somebody else will. And and in something like this, it'll, it, it could be too late. I think, you know, food is a very sensitive topic. And if you don't tell the story correctly, you run a real risk of it, of it not working. Do you know what else is a sensitive topic? Adult <laughs> entertainment. Now, I'm just going to, I'm flagging it now because uh, if you're listening to this in the car with kids, we are going to be talking about a very popular adult entertainment site. <laughs> Feel free to tune out for the next couple of minutes. This is due warning. Um, no more apples moving on to adult Well, con. I mean, what you do yeah. with the apples is entirely up to you. Uh, you're listening to download this show. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. You have been warned. 
The very popular adult entertainment site Pornhub has been in the news recently. Yeah. Why? Because laws are coming into place um, that requires adult entertainment sites to verify their users' ages. Um, and it's holding the site liable for serving content to minors. And so what this means, in layman's terms, <laughs> is that um, the laws are coming in saying, okay, if it, we need people to verify their age to be able to access pornographic content. And this has really thrown Pornhub in a bit of an awkward situation because users don't really want to have to give away their driver's license to be able to access, yeah, entertainment. But this is, you know, moving on from our first topic, this is coming in this, this phase of protecting children and age verification is something which is really a hot topic actually in like social media space as well at the moment with things like um, minors using TikTok and children having Instagram accounts and all this kind of stuff. And so we're in this weird pickle of how do we verify people's ages to be able to access content? They're coming for your porn. <laughs> well, it, it, I mean, it is. We, we laugh about this topic, but, you know, this is how the internet was made. Like, porn has been at the front of technological developments forever. It was the VHS. Then, you know, it's like, how do we get video content on the web and these, these things? Like, it, it is honestly a forefronter. And it's kind of ironic now that Pornhub is leading, you know, this kind of lobby to be like, okay, how are we going to do age verification? Because right now what they've just done is, is blocked it. For example, in Utah, they're, they're leading this. And so Pornhub has just like completely blocked access for anybody in Utah. And there's a few other states in the, in the US where um, they're going to be doing this again. Surely everyone should be entitled to access these kind of services. But if Pornhub's going to be liable to, you know, stopping that from being accessed by minors, it, it really is a complicated space between, well, is it is it their problem or is it the people who have devices? Like if I have an iPhone, is it not Apple's job to say that, oh, I am actually this age so that when I go to a website, my phone can actually tell the website that, yes, I have proven that I'm over 18 and I have the right to access this site. Meg, is there another way to verify age other than uploading a driver's license. Like I feel, I, I I guess I just feel like technologically there might be other solutions here. I mean, the moment that your driver's license is uploaded to anywhere online, I mean, even if you were to remove the potential for it to leak and for somebody to shame you for visiting something like mm. Pornhub, even if you remove that, right, just the simple act of uploading your, your driver's license creates a huge identity theft risk. They're coming for your porn, Mark. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> like, what are we going to do? Yeah, no, look. Why is it my porn? Like, why is it not yours? <laughs> our porn. They're coming oh for God. our porn. Oh Let me clarify. You know, age verification and the internet is not necessarily a new thing. The alcohol websites for years mm. have had just a, you know, scroll to your birthday and put that in and you have to kind of, you know, hope and pray that the person isn't lying to you. It is an interesting thing. As we all know, the more times you upload personal information to anything, the more likely you are for it to get stolen. So you want to minimize the amount of times that you do give information out. Now, 
does that mean we should look to have a central ID? I um, I don't know that I'm necessarily opposed to that. I kind of like the idea of a central ID. Now, I don't necessarily want it to be tied to my device. When I first thought about it being tied to my device, I was like, yes, but I'm the only one that uses my device. Mm-hmm. Mark, you've got kids. How many times do they take your phone? Uh, they aren't allowed to take my phone um, oh, because good I. Dad. That, no, sorry. They they take a number of other devices in the house, iPads yep. and and other people's phones. But no, I I have a generalized rule that uh, giving a nine year old access to seventy three thousand Twitter followers is probably not a great <laughs> life choice. But that's a very me that's a very me specific problem. Uh, True. I'm not going to sound like my kids don't have access to technology. They do, and it rules our lives. But I take your point nonetheless. Yeah, so you know the kids. So you can't do it to a device because we all share devices. You know, there's there's chatter about how does how does TikTok's algorithm work, and they show age specific stuff. You know, it's we're we're not there yet. I think to tie it to a to a device is hard. I think we do need some form of identification. I like the singular identification. I recently had to get a police check for um, a board that I'm joining. Right, I use my Australia Post digital ID. It was the easiest thing I've ever done. Mm. I don't have problems with that, and it was fully secure. Mm. It's funny that uh, that device sharing thing. Like the other day, uh, my little cousin, she just had my phone. I didn't really notice it. She ended up posting five TikToks in 20 minutes <laughs> of like, <laughs> doing dancing to Taylor Swift. And I picked up my phone, and I'd been locked out of my account because it flagged that it was an underage user and my account was going to be deleted if I didn't do something in like 24 hours. And I was like, oh, my God, I've spent years creating this algorithm. I'm not losing this account. And I had to, you know, take a photo with an ID, with a piece of paper, with a code to be able to reaccess my account and prove that I was overage and stuff. So what I thought was really interesting with that is TikTok uses behavioral cues and activity algorithms. So like it, it just thought that the behavior was odd. And so I thought that was quite interesting that they were able to pick that up within 10 minutes of it happening. TikTok's good. They're, they're, they're good. Their algorithm's great. It's, it's probably one of the first times probably made the observation that the, the, the algorithm is anything other than like addictive. <laughs> <laughs> That's True. good as well. I was really impressed. I mean, I was freaking out because I like I didn't want to lose my work. But like, yeah, I was I was actually very impressed that it picked it up so fast and knew what kind of had happened there. So I mean, anyway, a quick diversion back to Pornhub. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, like, how do we actually think this is going to play out? We've got different states in the US um, with different laws. We've got a very large, very powerful media uh, empire, which I, it should be said has had some really serious issues with things like uh, child exploitation material and image-based abuse in the past, right? It's been a pretty big shift. And let's not pretend like it hasn't come after the, like, not a, sh- not a shortage of pressure, right? We're in a different era of its, of its maturity as a, as a, as a website. And who's going to come out, I was going to say on top, but I'm going to stop myself. Uh, who's going to come out the winner in this particular battle? By what's going on in Utah, I don't think anyone's winning personally. I think part of the problem also is that we're talking now about a global society. And so we're, we're crossing yeah. lots of different jurisdictions as far as legalities and things like that. That's why I'm not opposed to sort of a, a singular ID that can be verified that say, for example, I've proven who I am. You know that I'm of age. Therefore, I can enter this code and you get, you know, proof. You are you are certified that I am that I'm of age. Um, I don't have to constantly, you know, come up with 100 points of identification. If there's a way that we can find that, that, you know, that says, you know, when I go to this website, I have verified, Mm. but I don't actually, you know, that's the hashing that we talked about, you know, Mm. before with with security. Um, I've I've already proven it to an authority that knows who I am. Australia Post already knows who I am. Why do I need to keep verifying it to X, Y, Z? 
Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture and from salad to porn to robots. Uh, if you traipse around Singapore Airport, Changi Airport, uh, Meg, you will see potentially a police robot. <laughs> yes. Tell me about the police robot. So, you know, we are we are definitely in the future or getting very close, but this is kind of cool. So, like, when I first thought of it, I was like, oh, it's going to be like, you know, like RoboCop. It's going to be like lean. <laughs> and and like- to be fair, it kind of looks a bit like the, the robots that they set up in RoboCop before RoboCop came on the scene, right? Well, exactly. And that's the problem. It's not this, like, sexy lean mannequin thing. It's like this little, like, tank that has a pole that goes 2.5 metres in the or however high it goes, right? Sorry, you lost me at sexy lean mannequin thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, so it's this little, you know, machine. LED screen, can see 360 degrees, can have sirens and make announcements. There's a su- suspicious bag. Step back, step back. Mm-hmm. Things like that. Look, I think it's kind of cool. And I think as far as the surveillance kind of things, which we all, you look, you're in an airport and you're in Singapore airport. Of course, you're going to be surveilled. I don't have a problem with it. I think it's kind of cool, and I think it helps, you know, the people that are in the office have a better clue as to what's going on on the ground. I like it. I think we're at a point now where I think we have to probably make our peace with the fact that robots will be a part of law enforcement in the future. Mm -hmm. And one of the things whenever we talk about law enforcement is there's a bit of a social contract that kicks into gear, Jesse, right, where collectively we accept certain things in return for safety. And I think whenever you introduce a new piece of technology or a new weapon or anything of that nature, I think that contract needs to be renegotiated. So when it comes to uh, police robots, right, what are the sorts of things that you're looking at going, I would like to be assured that it can uh, it can do this or it can't do that? Are there things like that that you would hope for as a, as a citizen? <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, I honestly feel like we're in a sci-fi, like, discussing this. But I think what I like about this is it seems to be just a space of surveillance. It seems to be, like, giving information to people in an office so it can go around, it can record what's going on. My fear is harm, obviously. Yeah, it's, it's not it's like, weaponized. It's, yeah, that's, that's where my fear comes in. It's like as soon as that thing has ability to or even make decisions as well, I think is hard. I don't know, I'm just so scared of picturing these things with a baton, you know. <laughs> um, that's what I don't want. One of the in- I, things I, I feel like we always come back to on this show is that when there's something physical like a, a robot or a humanoid, we always kind of focus our attention on it. Machine learning and algorithms and surveillance have sort of been on us for years now. That's sort of already been happening, but it's not as visible. And I guess that's why I think, Meg, that when you have something like a robot, and even though it's a robot that doesn't have a baton and a gun in it, that's the time you need to have the debate about what is acceptable and what's not. Because if you don't have it then, technology is going to do what technology does, which is just keep advancing, right? Because there's a market for it. So you're saying that we're in the minority report? Uh, I mean... Like, I think we're in, like, the prologue. Okay. You know, like, okay. the, like the Paramount logo's up. And- gotcha. <laughs> gotcha. Um, yeah, no, I agree with you. We do need to have the conversation. An airport's a different one. I, yeah. I submit to that. If I'm going through an airport, you can watch me. You can do whatever, right? Um, I think it comes down to the use cases of the technology, and that's where the conversation needs is. How are we going to use this? What, are the, what is the legislation around it? What are the restrictions around it? Who can access things? You know, but as we all know, law doesn't move fast enough for technology. I agree. With, with an airport, sure, surveillance is, you know, you just submit to that. But if you're thinking of like a protest, 
I remember there's that whole scandal that went out where all these photos were being taken of people at protests and then they were like, be, being able to use like facial recognition to find these people and all that. Yeah, kind of the stuff. January sixth so, insurrection, fantastic. Yeah, yeah it's, it's it's the location. It's like where is this surveillance taking place? And I mean, constant trade off between say, like safety and surveillance, and yeah, where what is suitable and how much, when and where. And with that, we are out of time. Huge thank you to our guest this week, Jesse Hughes, creative technologist. Thank you so much for joining us on Download the Show. Yes, I welcome. And Meg Coffee, digital strategist, thank you. Oh, thank you. It's always a good laugh. And if you enjoyed the program, firstly, I don't know what's wrong with you. Secondly, <laughs> you can leave a review on whichever podcasting app you happen to use us on. Also on ABC Listen, which doesn't have a review function, and thank God for that. My name's Mark Fennell, and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.